When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan and today is episode 11. He came, he saw, he laughed. Before we begin discussing Caesar's summer holiday, I just wanted to mention one tribe I left out in the discussion last week. The Ganganai uh, were a tribe which were possibly split between the Llyn Peninsula and southwest Ireland. Likely they were a maritime tribe and that would obviously make sense considering the tribe being split between two different locations, be it through kin or through a situation of invasion or possibly even just intermarriage and the eventual merging of the two or tribal groups into a single name. The one problem we have with this tribe, and part of the reason why I forgot to mention it last week, is there isn't a lot of historical record about them. In fact, they're kind of mentioned half-heartedly by Strabo, and really, they don't make the historical record outside of that. So, what happened to them? Again, we don't know. What we can guess, though, is is probably one of a couple of different things happened based on what happened with the other tribes of Wales. One, they may have actually merged in with the Deca Angli, who were their next-door neighbors, effectively, and may have either fought a war against them and taken them over, could have been enslaved... Uh, they could also have intermarried and then just kind of became interchangeable. Or the Romans really didn't see a difference between their tribe and the Deca Angli when they got there. And thus just never talked about them as a different tribe. And, finally, they may have just easily merged in with the Roman population that was coming to Britain and the Romano-British that were joining in with Romans. So thus, likelihood is, is they just vanish. And unfortunately, we don't have any more of them recorded in the scene area. However, we do know that there is a tradition of Irish settlers in that area. So this could have been one of that group. Now, let us return to that Caesar who is looking beyond the bounds of Gaul for areas to conquer. While Julius Caesar never made it as far as Wales, he will definitely have made an impact with the tribes living there. In 55 BC, Romans, under the orders of Gaius Julius Caesar landed in the southeast of the island known as Abalon to the ancients, uh, modern-day Britain. As he arrived, Caesar must have wondered if all the riches and wealth was worth the trouble. Five years earlier, in 60 BC, Caesar and his patron, Marcus Lucinius Crassus, had formed a secret agreement, or Amicita, with Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, better known to us today as Pompey the Great. This secret agreement will become known by scholars in the future as the First Triumvirate. Caesar was a nephew to Marius, and Marius was a general who was one of the great tyrants of the late Republic. He was considered so bad that Rome exiled him 30 years prior. 
uh, well known for his paranoia and tendency to arrest people at the drop of a hat, this was not a man who was considered lovingly by the public. So you can imagine how that would affect Caesar's uh, relationship with the public, having to live down his uncle's excesses. So Caesar's ascendancy was certainly nothing to take for granted or wasn't a given. In fact, he used a heck of a lot of guile and a lot of money to actually achieve what he had in the few years that he came to power. So where did his wealth come from? Well, his wealth actually comes from his patron, who was Crassus. Crassus used Caesar as kind of his political bargaining chip, wherein he needed someone who could support him and help him as he tried to go for the consulships and for the senatorial positions and the military positions. So having one other person who had built up a relationship with the people, which is what Caesar had done, would help him. So that's how they kind of started their relationship. And Crassus at this point is best known as the man who defeated Spartacus. Uh, Caesar, however, with his innate speaking ability, meant that he was lauded by both the people and the plebeians, who were sort of the underclass of middle-class rich people who weren't good enough or born to the right parents to become senators. That group was one of the ones that was always easily lobbied, because that group always felt aggrieved that they never really got their due. And so plebeians and the general public loved Caesar. Caesar was great at using Crassus's money, in fact, to sort of spread the wealth around. Uh, he would do so in things like triumphs, in having great games. In fact, the old comment about bread and circuses, uh, that if you give the people food and entertainment, they will be always happy with you. Uh, Caesar was definitely of that idea, and so he used that to his benefit. He also became, at one point, the Pontifus Maximus, which, as we know it today, is the position that the Pope holds, but it is a position that's over 2,500 years old, is the head of the Roman Church, whatever point in time that church was or is. So, and of course, in, in Julius Caesar's time, it was a pagan church. Uh, and he used that power to increase his own wealth and also, more importantly, to increase his standing with the public. So Julius comes from a long line of the senatorial class. The Julian uh, name was actually one of the founding names in Rome, according to the mythology. So thus, it becomes the senatorial class and has this distinction throughout the next few hundred years of this. However, like I said, he's having to come against his own name. So as he progresses and becomes more powerful, one of the things he needs to do in order to take him to the next step, get him over the top, get him at the level of power and prestige of Crassus and Pompey, who were older than he was, military leaders who had been very successful, Caesar to that point really hadn't been. Uh, his most successful thing to that point had been being captured by pirates and then basically going back and killing every one of them. So he wasn't well known as being sort of this military general and very successful person. So when he was put in charge of a, an area in the south of France, uh, he used it as an excuse to basically create a war. Uh, and the Romans are great at that. They, they love to create wars out of nothing. Caesar used that power to lead a war in Gaul under the usual Roman excuse, which mostly consists of the negligible offense being turned into a need to go to war. Oh, you stepped on my lawn yesterday? Well, now we're going to fight. That kind of thing. It didn't take a lot to convince the Romans to go to war. 
And there's three reasons for that. One, Romans generally, if you wanted to be a powerful faction in the late Republic, and this actually goes for all of the emperors later. In fact, Nero gets sneered at because he isn't one. You need to be famous in being successful militarily. You need to conquer something. And the other reasons why you do that are because, well, one, as I said, it gives you fame. It also gives you money because the captured territory falls under your purview. Suddenly you increase your own wealth as you raid that population. And third, and also just as importantly, it also gives you land that you can give to your legion so that when a soldier retires in the Roman Republic and later on into the empire, they were actually gifted uh, what they call a colony or a colonia, which is then used to resettle them. So that when their time in the military is up, they have land to move to. Because, of course, you couldn't obviously settle them all with land in Rome. So that was one of the arguments, is that you would take these colonias, settle your former troops. So the troops benefit from having raided, raped, pillaged, blah, blah. Uh, they also benefit from the fact that they gain financially and gain in land which is really important to the Roman people, because if you're a landed, settled person, you have a lot more rights than somebody who isn't. So for these people, that became important. So defeating an enemy, taking a territory, you get the fame, you get the public support, you have the money in which to spread it around to gain more political support, and conversely, you maintain loyalty amongst your troops because you can give them benefits outside of the normal paycheck, which to be fair, was pretty minimal. So that's the reason why he goes to war in Gaul. It also will give him the reputation that he can use politically uh, to kind of make himself equal to Pompey and Crassus, who had been considered to be very successful. Of course, for Crassus, that all comes crashing down later. And without getting into this as a Roman podcast, let me just say, uh, his end doesn't end well as he gets into a battle over in the eastern half of the Roman Empire and loses, well, not Roman Empire, the eastern half of the Roman Republic loses his life in a battle. His standards, which are kind of like the flags that they used to carry, in, like the battle flags and such, think of it like that. He loses those standards. That's a great Roman disgrace. That's one of the things they never like doing. And they will fight tooth and nail to get them back. So he loses them. They get taken to Parthia, which is a, a kingdom out near uh, Iraq and Iran area. And then for the next, I guess it's like nearly 40 years, um, the Romans are trying to get these standards back. And they eventually do. But let's get back to our point. So the point is, is that Caesar is trying to become powerful, wealthy, uh, build loyalty within his troops because he knows that this triumvirate is not going to last. The reality of it is the minute Crassus dies and then the pact between Pompey and Caesar falls apart soon after that because of the death of Caesar's uh, sister or no daughter who he'd married to Pompey um, leads to this whole problem. And that conflict is coming. So Caesar is out there trying to get enough power, enough wealth so that he can turn it to his benefit. Whether his plan was to become the next Roman emperor or Roman king, or if he even really at that stage had planned to fight Pompey, I can't honestly say, but this is how it starts and this is where it goes. So with all that in mind, let's go back to what 
we're com- we've come here for. When Caesar fights to conquer Gaul, it takes him over 10 years to achieve this. So it's a long, hard slog. And in the midst of it, allies of the Gauls, uh, be they the Belgae or the uh, British, start to send uh, troops to their allies in Gaul to help them fight the Romans. And this is something of an interest because this will gain the attention of Caesar. Now, up to this point, Albion, as it was called by the Romans, is free of problems with the Romans, basically because they don't really know much about it. And as the Romans start to get into Gaul and into what we now call northern France and Belgium, they will get in contact with a people called the Amerika, who we've talked about a bit before. And these people have been trading for hundreds of years with their friends, associates, kin across the sea. And so that bridge between the English Channel creates a system and a situation where when people like the Romans start to figure out that this is where all this wealth is coming from, they suddenly go, hey, I think we need to check this out. And that's effectively what happens. Um, So... This trade and this connection was so strong that the Gallic tribes uh, tried to actually hide the knowledge of the area from Caesar. They claimed ignorance of the interior of Britain while informing the Romans that while informing on the Romans to their allies in Britain, basically letting them know that uh, guys, he's turned his eye to you. This might be trouble. Um, another reason for this may have been the desire by the rebellious Americans to keep their trade advantage with Britain, which supplied a number of items to Europe. As we mentioned before, mineral wealth, uh, slaves, all sorts of things come from Britain at this point. And as I said, if you start to figure out where they're coming from, your next thought is, well, if it's that wealthy that it can afford to give away all this stuff, hmm, this might be a target we need to look at. So having intelligence and knowing what's going on was a key point. And the reason that the the allies in Gaul were <laughs> basically hiding this information is likely because if they lose Britain, that is the funnel for their defense of their own country because, of course, they're giving them the the stuff they need to make iron so that they can make weapons, uh, the items of gold and and other things that give them their sense of economic wealth and prosperity. So if you lose that angle, suddenly you're in trouble. And of course, like I said, Caesar decides to make a bit of a check on this. So in August of 55 BC, he takes a small force with him to, and tries to cross the English Channel. And I think the key word there is try. Now he does get across, but If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, 
Try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. If you've ever watched top, the Top Gear episode of them trying to cross the channel on a sunny day when the water was rough, you understand how difficult this would have been for a small single sail vessel that the Romans were using at the time. You know, the seas can heave and flip and they, they can be so much rougher within so short of a space of time. And even though the English Channel is small, it doesn't take much to create chaos. And we know that the Romans did not have a good time of it trying to get across. And when they finally did get across, they may have wondered why they bothered. When they arrived, they were immediately greeted by the tribes of Southeast Britain. And initially, their fierce warrior code and strange to the Romans tactics and religious practices confused them and created problems for the Roman, at least initially. But as the Romans got their footing and spent a bit of time clobbering the various tribes through either battle or diplomacy, one of the smartest men in history, if you believe his own propaganda, started to figure these British out. They were not un a united people at that point, obviously. Uh, Britain won't be a united place for thousands of years, even. So, realistically, that was one of the problems. And to kind of put this into categories so that you can understand, um, not only were they not united, but they also were warring often amongst themselves. We made mention of the fact that there was battles going on of some type. Uh, going back four or five hundred years, there's evidence of sling stones at, at some of the hill forts and massive categories of them. Uh, chariots were buried often with political war leaders in northern England, uh, which probably points to a sense of a soldier class. Swords, as we said before, were being buried or put into water sources, thus obviously were important. And if they're important enough to be put in those locations, which may have been considered holy, again, that goes back to the concept that they were a warlike people and they had trained themselves. And in fact, they had trained themselves in a way that the Romans weren't used to. And we're going to discuss that in a second. But I just want to go back to one aspect of this. The big problem when you have a situation so like if you think back of when the conquistadors and the colonists came to America and dealt with the Native Americans. Now, aside from the problems with disease that obviously decimated the, the Native American population, um, mostly by accident, the 
Aztecs, as an example, were a major force in Central America. So much so that they had dominated their neighbors. And the neighbors weren't terribly happy with the Aztecs. Now, whether they were being used for uh, slaves or workers or if they were being used for sacrifices by the Aztecs, I, I don't know enough about it to say. But the reality of it was they weren't happy. And so that when the conquistadors come along, who really are underwhelming in the amount of troops they're sending over to deal with them, the Spanish weren't exactly expecting this to be something where they needed hundreds of thousands of troops to take it. So what they did was, is they instead used the advantage of this enmity to create a system where they got their allies together with them and with their superior firepower plus their Native American allies were able to knock off the Aztecs. And this is kind of what happens in Britain. And because what the Romans do is they use their contacts in Britain to create problems for the local tribes. Um, and we're going to get into that when Caesar comes back. But in his first summer holiday, uh, Caesar had made plans to make a return visit. And this time it would be much bigger and better than the previous version. And they would make some new friends. From a British viewpoint... These things aren't recorded. We don't actually know what their opinion of the confrontation was. We have a very one-sided history coming from the man who, you know, he's writing his memoirs, justifying himself to the people of Rome, and why is he going and fighting all these people? So, you know, he's making out a lot of things that may or may not have been totally true, uh, and trying to create similarity where similarity may not have been with the Gauls, and he may have been lying in some ports, and may have just been deciding that he wanted to get the money and the wealth that was obviously in the island of Britain for himself, and so, and for his troops more importantly, so part of it may have been completely selfish, and probably almost all of it was, but there may be hints of truth in what he's saying. But even without that, we can still make some guesses, and not necessarily uneducated ones. Likely, the British tribes allied with kins and friends on the other side of the channel, amongst the Belgae and the Gauls, must have had a lot of intelligence in dealing with the Romans. While it seems likely the trade franchise did not contact Rome directly, we've already talked about how the trading in bronze, tin, and other precious minerals likely reached Greece hundreds of years before through other means and other methods, and people like the Amerika were basically the go-between between these groups and the Mediterranean. So likely, there wasn't loads of British travel to these areas, and it would have been unusual to see them. In fact, when slaves start to get taken from Britain, they are so different and unusual to the Romans that they make a point of writing it down. But still, even with that, much of the Roman culture would start to seep in, regardless of whether there was contact or not. Uh, to use a more modern example, again, going back to North America, the gun trade with the Native American tribes, which would reach the western parts of North America long before the white colonists ever did. Uh, coastal tribes traded with the interior for furs and other supplies, which they would then send back with the colonists and the explorers so that they could take something from them and gain something in fact, a lot of the trade in amongst the Native American tribes was such that they were long trading with white settlers that they'd never seen and would only hear about. And likely that's very similar for the Welsh. I don't think the Welsh knew anything about the Romans as a people at that point. The tribes that were living in Wales typically 
may have only heard of them in rumor. Or maybe the local bard came along and sang a song about these weirdos that came across the sea with their metal armor and their weird marching and funny shields and little swords and just kind of that's how they got their description. Or maybe they were described as this fierce holy terror brought on by the gods to punish them for some reason. Because, of course, that's a popular idea. So, and again, going back to North America, the Hudson's Bay Company, as an example in northern Canada, made a living for hundreds of years with Native communities doing exactly this type of trading, wherein, rather than going out and necessarily settling across the western Canada, rather than settling across western Canada, the the Hudson's Bay Company and its succeeding companies mostly just traded with the natives who brought stuff from other areas. It would only be as they tried to expand forts out that they would develop more contacts within the communities. So with that context in mind, like I said, the Welsh would have never had any dealings with the Romans and like at to this point, at least that we know of. For Wales, this would they Okay, let's try that For Wales, which would be a place where minerals were plentiful, it was likely that they traded with their neighbors for other items of use, and likely that mineral wealth was then traded to America, and then eventually to Rome. In other words, the Welsh tribes were likely the extreme edge of a massive supply chain, and in so doing created interest in men like Julius Caesar. Caesar, on the other hand, saw the chaos in order of the day. Caesar, on the other hand, saw chaos was the order of the day with British fighting styles, and he was very curious about them. In fact, he wrote them down. Uh, Chariots were a major tool in the Iron Age arsenal, and the British tribes knew how to use them. And Caesar saw that firsthand. In fact, I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit from him. This is the way the British fight with their chariots. First, they drive in about in all directions, throwing spears, spreading chaos throughout the ranks of their enemies, and by terror, their galloping horses and screeching wheels. This description gives a great idea of the sound and noise that must have been facing somebody who was dealing with these chariots, which would fly backwards and forwards using their horses to send coordinated attacks into that line of troops. They would then drop their payload among the cavalry, and that payload would then be foot soldiers who would then get in and do the dirty work that the chariots themselves couldn't do. The chariots would then drive away, seeking safety while creating an opportunity to go in and rescue their soldiers if they actually got in any trouble. This was such a curious thing to Caesar that he actually went to the bother of writing it down. The combined arms obviously wasn't something that was used on the continent, and so it must have really surprised him to deal with that. And that may have been part of the reason why the Romans were smarting after their first adventure, because they really didn't have a concept of what was there before they hit, at least if you are to believe what Caesar has said. So if Caesar's right, we are seeing the end of the line, all of this would have shocked and, and surprised him. And it continues to do so later on. In fact, in the second invasion is one when they start, starts to describe some of the forces as painting themselves blue and woad uh, to try and make themselves much scarier, I guess would be the word I would use. Um, now, in July of 54 BC, in fact, let's go back to that. The Romans had left Britain smarter and more prepared for the next time. They knew about the tribes, they knew about the splits, they knew about the problems that were there, and they knew the wealth was still there. So their plans were much better created and prepared this time round. And so this time Caesar meant business. 
This time he took with him five legions and 2,000 cavalry for a total of 27,000 men, and they crossed the channel in 800 ships at the beginning of July. Caesar might have been shaky on shaky footing politically previous to this. Um, his adventure into Britain wasn't something that was actually commissioned by the Roman public or the Roman Senate, and in fact had been sort of a... a a roll of the dice and hope I don't get punished for it kind of thing. And the public, in fact, were so delighted with his achievements in the previous term, they decided to be excited about it even more this time around. And so with that license, it gave Caesar the ability to bring a much bigger force and actually enforce some will upon the British. Um, the other big thing is, is he was accompanied by, or at least advised, by a British prince named Mandabracius son of the king of the Trevantes, who controlled Essex. He had been forced to abandon his home when his father was killed in a war with the neighboring tribe of the Catavolani. The Catavolani? The Catavolani. Now, Caesar had a scout, a spy, and a translator, all in one irked prince. So, he used that to the obvious effect. And the obvious effect was that he controlled and dominated southeastern Britain. He would immediately achieve a lot more success because on landing, they weren't opposed. Obviously, they landed in an area that was friendly to their contacts in Britain. And that lack of opposition probably gave them the ability to enter the area unopposed, unharassed, so that you know, whenever you make a landing in these type of situations, no matter what era, it's always important to have element of surprise. And secondly, if you can clear the beach area from being harassed, your chances of successfully landing troops goes up by a lot. And that's the case here. They land, they start to come into inland Britain, they start to dominate the foes that they're now used to. They've obviously trained themselves to deal with the problems that come from a force that isn't as in the same mode of the previous ones they've been fighting. Because the Britons were even looked differently than the Gauls. There was only certain ones that Caesar even considered to be similar to the Gauls. So for the most part, it sounds like they just had to prepare themselves for this battle. And you can definitely tell that, that it influenced him enough that he sat there and, and wrote quite a bit about it and about his experience with the people that they have there. One of the most interesting things I, I found is that he uh, said that there was a large population on the island. So obviously there was, for the Romans, a lot of people there. And we know that southeastern Britain was fairly compact with population because it had good grazing land, so it was easier to kind of spread out. And it didn't have the same rivalries that they had in the central part where... They were building hill forts and defenses and, and obviously were having ceremonial and possibly real wars between each other. So Caesar himself only gets to about London when he stops. Of course, London doesn't exist where he stops there. But they kind of spend some time convincing various kings to make fealty to the Roman Republic and to give them uh, gold and to supply them with various things. Caesar then takes with him uh, a bunch of captive prisoners, uh, some of which are noble, 
this is an old tactic of the Romans that they will continue to do for quite some time. Whenever they defeat somebody, they usually grab all the princes and nobles in the area. They take them back to Rome and they try and Romanize them so that when they go back, if they go back, they will then spread the Roman understanding to the rest of their colleagues and friends. And that kind of does happen because most of these tribes will then start using coinage, which they didn't really use before that. They start to trade in very Roman ways. And the other part that Caesar did inflict upon them is that he broke the trade link to the Americans and created a link to Rome. So now all of a sudden, Rome had a source of wealth that it could rely on and a source of minerals. And of course, this will only intrigue the Romans to come back. But right now, they don't. And these tribes, for the moment, swear at least a resemblance of fealty to Rome, make their due payments, and then make money off the trading, and probably get a lot of material wealth coming back to them. Because, of course, Rome is a much more industrial area than what Britain was at this point, and so they have a lot more assembly line-like things, like the amount of pottery that comes out in Rome, the Roman Britain times, will never be repeated until Victorian era. The amount of wealth is in a wider variety is probably not repeated until the Victorian era. You have a lot of good things that come with Roman influence, along with all the bad things. And, of course, the big bad thing is now you're in their mode, their idea. They understand something about you. It likely means they're coming for you eventually, and you're going to have to prepare. And that's exactly what will happen a 100 years later, when Claudius does basically what Julius does and comes to shore with a lot of legions, but this time not looking to kind of make a little statement, get a little bit of slaves and some nobles and run back to Rome saying, haha, look what I did. No, he was coming to stay. And we'll get to that, and we'll talk about so much more as we keep going, and I hope you'll join me next time, because next time we're going to talk about one of those things that I think uh, probably confused the life out of Julius Caesar, and that was the Druids. So until next time, bye! This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. What's up, guys? We just launched a Patreon to help us bring in some money for upgrades and advertising. There's a lot of cool tiers on there that you should check out, and you can get all the extra content for just $5 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash distractionsmedia. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.